Hello, and welcome to Rewildology, the show all about conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. If you're anything like me, then your definition of a fun summer day includes some sort of body of water. Maybe you live by a wide flowing river and go boating on the weekends. Possibly one of your friends has an epic pool that you soak in every chance you get. Maybe you're a beach bum and don't care if you're at a lake or by the sea as long as sand is involved. Yes, we humans love water, and so does every other living creature on this planet. It is becoming clear that we're approaching a water crisis between water security issues, climate change, and extreme weather events. While we're being heavily affected by these changes, wildlife is being affected even more. Every time we alter a water source for our own use, the wildlife that depends on that source is faced with direct and indirect challenges for finding enough water to survive. One scientist is working diligently to bring this issue, along with possible solutions, to the table. His name is Charles Von Rees, PhD, the guest of today's show. Charles grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and was a pretty disconnected kid in school, which I'm sure a lot of us can relate to. He didn't discover his passion for nature until he became heavily involved in a seemingly unrelated practice, martial arts. By learning the way of the warrior, Charles realized that his skills had no meaning unless it benefited others, and he knew after taking an environmental science course that he wanted to dedicate his life to conservation. Charles and I chat in depth about the current water crisis and its effect on wildlife. We also talk about a huge paper he's currently working on that might change the way we view and handle freshwater ecosystems. In his free-ish time, Charles is also a regular host on the Nature Guys podcast, a super fun show all about getting outdoors and exploring our backyards, which I highly recommend you all check out after listening to this show. We recorded today's episode in my living room in Denver, Colorado, as Charles was road tripping from Montana to Georgia to start his new and exciting career. We had so much fun recording this conversation for you all, and I hope you enjoy it just as much as we did. If you're liking the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to never miss a future episode. Also, if you'd like to support the show, check out the new Rewildology store at rewildology.com. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. All right, everyone, on to my conversation with Charles. But before we dive into who you are really deep, how are you like in Denver? I am enjoying Denver very much. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a big change of pace for me. Mm-hmm. Now that I've been living in rural Montana for almost two years, being around young people is a shock. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very different. Seeing lots of people is, is different. Having coffee shops and things to go to. And this is weird. This is what always surprises people. But honestly at least where I am in Montana, it's not easy to find places to get outside and recreate. And I know that sounds really weird. That is really weird. Yeah. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a huge state, right? It's the, f- I think it's the fourth largest state in the country mm. and it is mostly outside and yet access to outside things 
is really difficult in, in, in certain parts of Montana, mm-hmm. um, especially in lower income areas. And, wow. and, I, and I've been living in a much more low income part of the state, really. And, um, and so most of the beautiful outside land is all owned by billionaires and they're not going to let you on. There's fences everywhere. So, you know, if I ever wanted Damn. to, yeah, yeah, it was, that was something that really shocked me because I, the first time I lived in Montana, I lived in a much more wealthy area, you know, and that, and that brings all the kind of Denver qualities of like all these, you know, this is of course one of the advantages of those areas getting gentrified. And of course there are way more problems than there are advantages, but one of the advantages of a place like Bozeman where I first lived is that those people who come in value access to nature a lot mm. and they have views that that should be more of a, that should be more of a right or that should be more of something that everyone gets to do. So in Bozeman, there were literal like trail systems that were designed to come right off the street and get you to the top of a mountain. And you could literally like walk, walk out of your coffee shop <laughs> and just go to the top of a mountain and come back, you know, and where I lived, that was not the case. And I had mm. to, you know, I usually had to drive, uh, over an hour to find a place to go for a walk. And then of course I'm driving over an hour. I'm thinking to myself, well, I can't just take a stroll. I need to like go get out there. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to walk at least a couple hours anyhow, you know? And, and so, and so that was difficult, I think, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially being kind of an early career interdisciplinary academic, like (laughs) the amount of workload I've been juggling. I didn't often have that much time to do this kind of stuff. And so it really like hammered my, my opportunities to go outside, you know, Whereas, yeah, here there's there's just so much. There's so many trails near the city. Took a I don't know, 15 minute wonderful little walk through some drainage swales near this this apartment complex. It was beautiful. May have even found an endangered bird, I right? May, yeah, I may have found. Yeah, exactly. And I don't I don't know what their status is in Colorado, but I'm pretty sure I saw a Says Phoebe, which is actually one of my favorite fly catchers. Oh. Believe it or not, I absolutely adore them. Yeah, they have this like cute like plaintive little song. It's like adorable. This one wasn't talking very much, probably because we're too late for the breeding season. But yeah, you just you just find all this great nature, you know, and it's harder when everything's fenced off. <laughs> you can't yeah. you can't do those kind of rambles as much. And that that was yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. so that that's why I like Denver so much. That's one of the big things I really enjoyed. It's like all the cool city aspects, but clearly, you know, the the prevailing culture here is one that that values that access. And mm-hmm. public lands, public lands are super important. Yeah. In general. So anyway, that's yeah, my because we run. like all, the hike we went on because you spent a lot of time in Estes Park, which is awesome, up in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah, which way is beautiful. Out there. But the hike that we went on this weekend was just right outside of Golden, and right. Golden is like pretty much the city over from here. Yeah. And so we were thirty minutes away, and we got what was it, at least four or five mile hike in. It was a serious hike. Yeah, and, definitely. And, one. and you know, those were all probably somewhat disturbed chaparral ecosystems, but it was a testament to how much great biodiversity you can encounter in a place that has mm-hmm. had a lot of human impact. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot going on there. There were a lot of native species. We saw really cool insects. The plant life was amazing. Bird life was pretty nuts. I mean, you got a lifer, on a life bird. That does not happen <laughs> to me. That's like in North America. That's really hard for me. Oh unless I'm like, I haven't been to the Southwest yet. And that's mm-hmm. my big plan. It's like, that's going to be a bonanza for me. But yeah, I mean, that was, it was awesome. And yeah. that was half an hour. And I, I, where I lived in Montana, which is interesting. That is super interesting. And I just had no idea. I've just never really been to that part of the United States yet. Just, mm. I just haven't had an opportunity to get there. Cause yeah, when, yeah, for sure. when I've been to Yellowstone was the other side is Wyoming. Cause that's an easy, mm. like, relatively easy drive from here. Yeah. And I was just in the national parks camping the whole time. So like, there's so many aspects of this stuff that you don't see until you actually are in a place for a long time, which I'm all about. 
you know, like actually experiencing a place versus just popping in and popping out. But sometimes it's hard. And that's why it's really interesting to hear people's stories about that kind of stuff. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea that. I mean, it's like, it's freaking Montana. I know, I know. And like, (laughs) I have a very different, I I have like this view of Montana as this big, beautiful I mean, glaciers there, like this, oh, yeah. all this like outdoor stuff. Yes. And just to even think that even someplace like that, it could be hard to get out in nature. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty odd. mind-blowing. Yeah. You just have to find, I think, different ways of doing it, mm-hmm. you know, but it is. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a lot more, it was a lot more difficult, at least where I was. Yeah. But I love Denver. I mean, this is always my problem is people always ask me, oh, what did you think of this place? What do you think of that place? And I'm like, oh, wow, there was this like diversity of flowers. And they're like, uh, I was asking about like the bars, dude. And I'm like, I can't help you. I don't, I don't remember the name what of any bar. beer scene? Yeah. I, like I, you know, and I love a good beer here and there, but I just don't, I don't, none of that stuff sticks with me. Mm-hmm. But for me, and I remember writing about this when I was uh, living in Europe a lot, like a huge part of my sense of place comes from the nature mm. that I encounter. And that's how I remember a place is all, you know, I can walk down a path. I'm like, Oh, this is where I saw the longhorn beetle, you know, emerging from tree bark or what have you, you know? And I think that's one of the beautiful things about having, you know, being a naturalist. I don't mean that in any sort of hoity toity, like really uppity way. I just mean that like anybody who wants to study, study nature, it gives you an incredibly powerful sense of place. Because you're learning so many other, because human human minds and human memory, as far as I understand it, works a lot more like a like a network. And the more things you have connected to things, the easier it is to remember them. Mm. And so we're already pretty good at remembering places. But when you start attaching experiences and other meaningful things, like when you become a naturalist, seeing a certain bug starts having meaning to you. It's not just like oh, there goes a bug. You're like there goes a who's he what, and mm. I, I think mm-hmm. all these things mm-hmm. about it. Or I remember that last time I saw that, I was with my friend Brooke and that made me happy. And now I feel good when I see that bug. You know, you can really add this incredible depth to your life, I think, by becoming a naturalist. And I, so I'm always very, like, very like evangelical about it. I'm like <laughs> trying to get everyone to like be a naturalist. But, but that's something I notice is that, is that there's a whole other dimension to every place I go now. I get to experience the bars, meet the people, whatever. And then I'm also like, wow, I had never seen that butterfly before that was cool you know or, or oh man the 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 swifts here make a different sound than the ones where i yeah. grew up and like what you know things like that so anyway, it's i mean that was you on moment. our entire hike yeah. like, <laughs> they have a different accent it's so funny because oh, that was you know, crazy. i'm definitely more on mammalogy side so you know mm. like mammals are more my things so yeah. i like to be on an awesome hike with like a birder that knows birds really well <laughs> like to talk about birds and accents i just lost it i was that like, wild this is the funniest thing yeah but it's just i just don't know any better i mean i definitely enjoy all these birds and like the ones that i'm more attracted to of course the predators so i was like yeah hawk eagle oh my god right you know right. and that's more of what i'm doing <laughs> so to hear it come to hear your experience out of it was really interesting as well it's like wow that's a different accent than where i grew up i'm just like that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's just like such a human way to say it. Yes. It's like, it's, yeah, yeah. And I think great. those parallels, especially dealing with like vertebrate animals, mm-hmm. so many, to use like nerdy biological terms, like so much is conserved across the vertebrates, which is to say that we have so many things that are exactly the same. Because over evolutionary history, there was no reason to change them. Right. And so we just have all these things that we completely share, you know, like, like sneezing and yawning and stuff like so many vertebrates do that. And it's kind of weird that mm-hmm. we're exactly the same in that sense. And like accents for vocal animals, that's one of those things that you can go to Missouri and go to Massachusetts and like listen to an Eastern Phoebe and they sound totally different 
And like, why not just say the Missouri one has a Southern drawl? You know, and like it's the same thing. It's the same thing. That's amazing. So yeah, and we encountered that, and it totally freaked me out. It was cool. <laughs> You're like, I'm so confused. <laughs> no, it was fantastic. You're like, no, that's definitely the same bird. It just has an accent. Yeah. I'm like I've never, I've just never heard it. Yeah, like, that was messing that with that me way? for sure. Yeah. Oh my god, that was awesome. <laughs> it was a lovely hike. I, yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. So we're talking about the differences between here and home. Mm. So let's go back in time. Let's explore yeah. child Charles. We're so, talking. We're talking time machine back. Talking time talking, machine back. Time machine back. The, you're not from Montana. Right. You're definitely yeah. not from this part of the U.S. Yeah. yeah. So let's go back. What <laughs> was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? And when did you decide to get into conservation? Mm. Yeah, this is a. It's, it's a really, you know, because you always look back on these things and you're sort of constantly assessing, assessing that narrative. And I, I feel <laughs> for a while I felt, I felt kind of embarrassed by my path going into it because it was not particularly traditional. You know, I'm so used to talking to all these like really talented biologists and they're just like, oh man, when I was five years old, I collected 700 plant species and pressed them. And then like whatever, like this botanist thought I was great. And then, or like, oh, my dad was an ecologist. And then I got all this extra training. And I think that's amazing. And it's so cool. And I really admire people who have just been in it forever, you know, but so I, I should say, so in terms of the where I grew, I grew up in the Boston metro area in Massachusetts, Eastern Mass. So very different. And we're turning our time machine. I'm dating myself here, but we're going back to like early nineties when I was like a functional human being. <laughs> I was born at the end of the eighties, but I kind of, I missed all that. Uh, except for the good music, I guess you can't, you can't lose that. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, you know, my path into conservation was a pretty indirect one, really, certainly in a professional sense. I was always the weird kid. I still am the weird kid, but I think it's much easier to be the weird kid as an adult than it is as a child. You know, it's, you know, all my, the, the few friends I had were also really weird kids. <laughs> and that's fine. But, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, through elementary and beyond, I wasn't very athletic. I was always kind of like very sickly <laughs> and very shy and just very strange. I just, I had way too much imagination and it just like my imagination dominated everything in my life. I was like anxious about things or I was just always thinking about other stuff. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD at a very young age, you know, and, and so like school was hard in a sense in that, like, I just, it was, I, I was just too busy thinking about other things or, or making up stories to myself and, and things like that to really do well. <laughs> so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't phenomenal at math. I wasn't particularly good at science or anything like that. In fact, originally I, my main push was I wanted to be a fiction writer for a long time. That was like a huge thing for me. But I guess in terms of, the, you know, the, the seeds for conservation, I think, came from my being a weird kid, not having a lot of friends. And so then I would, I would just spend a lot of time alone, kind of dealing with my own imagination. And that usually in a place uh, like the suburbs of Boston, where there is a lot of forest. Um, it's really interesting. Eastern Massachusetts is one of the most aforested areas in the United States, which means that as opposed to deforested, it all this formerly agricultural land has been abandoned for a hundred and whatever years. And so all these forests are coming back in Eastern mm -hmm. Massachusetts. And so there were always woods nearby where I lived and I would just go and walk around and probably, you know, just pretend to be a power ranger or whatever. But in the process, I'd run into some insects and be like, whoa, what the, what's going on there? You know, or see some bird or what have you. And that always, that always gave me some, in, some interest. And then I also loved nature shows. 
Mm. Which that and that's typical. That's you know, yeah. and I was really especially because it was the '90s. Marty Stauffer's Wild America was my jam, <laughs> and I can just remember being like a very small child, and like whenever it was on, I would like sit there with a bowl of like ramen noodles and like watch Marty Stauffer, and it would just like change my life. So that was huge. But I didn't. I I I, I don't know. I just sort of didn't. I don't think I knew what it meant to be a conservationist, to be a scientist. I just sort of like thought it was cool and like wasn't really applying myself. And, and what really, and this is, this is interesting for me, that the big, when I really look back on it, this has been a strange realization that what actually did it, what actually got me serious and into conservation and on that path had nothing to do with wildlife and nothing to do with, you know, the environment or ecology. It was uh, martial arts. And, you know, people always look at me sideways when I say that, but yeah, I, I kind of, I was kind of having this, I don't know, very, very like aimless, you know, dreamy childhood for a long time. And then when I was around 14, 15, 16 age, I started getting really interested in, in martial arts. I don't particularly know why. Um, I mean, probably some school bullying and stuff, but beyond that, I just, I don't know. I was really drawn to it. I was drawn to the philosophies of East Asian martial arts. I was drawn to the the aesthetics of the movements and the techniques and things and the two martial arts that i started getting really interested in and reading about and then training in were aikido which is a traditional it's an interesting kind of 20th century fusion of a bunch of very old japanese warrior traditions and which was a interesting one of the first kind of mixed martial arts in the modern sense that was invented by Bruce Lee, who, of course, has a lot of name recognition. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, absolutely. And he, he, I think, obviously, he had an absolutely huge impact on the martial arts community and his philosophies and so on. And I was a, I was a gigantic fan of his mm -hmm. and, and his martial art. But anyway, to kind of cut to the chase, yeah, I would say, you know, two major principles coming from each, from the founders of those two martial arts really affected me a lot. And we can get into that because that's sort of oddly been this guiding thing in my in my science and in my career going forward. But I think what really did it for me in terms of doing martial arts was one, suddenly I was applying myself and being good at something. And that was really, I hadn't really done that before. Mm. You know, I'd always been like kind of like the smart, weird kid who could be funny, but I was never like good at anything. And suddenly I could, I felt like I could excel at things and learn things and be accomplished. You know, I would, I would get tested and examined in martial arts and I would like make the grade and like get these promotions or whatever. Or, I, or I'd like have a sparring session and like feel like I was in control. And I was like, wow, like I've never done that. I've never felt that. And also, you know, when I started to get into the culture of martial arts and the philosophy, there's so much about personal discipline and taking control of your life and your thoughts and what you do and learning to concentrate in things. I think for someone with my learning disability, that was a very powerful thing to learn. That it wasn't like, oh yeah, like whatever, go take some medication or what have you. And of course that, that stuff can help a lot of people in a lot of ways. But it was especially powerful, I think, for me at that time as like a young teenage boy to learn like, wait a minute, I can just do this myself. Like I can just develop my willpower and concentrate. And so suddenly I started like really trying hard in school, all these things like that. And it was all coming from inside. I just wanted to do it. Uh, and that that was really powerful. And I still I still wanted to be a fiction writer, but I was just trying hard in all these topics because like, okay, I guess I have to go to college. I guess I have to do all these things. And I was really fortunate to participate in like a summer program at Brown University 
in environmental leadership. And that really struck me. That was the first time I started to get really aware. They're like, yeah, okay. I thought bugs were cool. I thought birds were cool. I like being in the woods, but I really started to connect all that to like, wait a minute, we're like losing this stuff all the time. We have all these dramatic environmental problems. Our society is creating these problems and how are we going to deal with it? We need to do something. And that hadn't really hit home with me. And I think because I had started practicing martial arts, especially learning from the, the, the really traditional principles and philosophies of Budo, which is the Japanese way of the warrior. It's this kind of like set of like tenets around like, if you are a martial artist, if you are a warrior, you should be these things. And, you know, as an impressionable, like 15 year old boy, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I need to be. You know, a big part of the, the Japanese martial arts tradition is like, yeah, okay, you've become strong, you've become dangerous or whatever. That all of that is meaningless unless you are serving the world, unless you are protecting or doing something useful. Your strength has no meaning unless it benefits others. And that was a really powerful thing for me at that age. And so between starting to get into that and doing this environmental thing and learning about all these issues, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to have a mission. That's the whole point of being a warrior. I need to do something. And so that started, I started, oh my gosh, I need to become a conservationist. I need to do something to benefit wildlife. And then the, the interest in, in science, I think, started to go a lot more. I, I, my, my father is an engineer, so he was always telling me about science things, telling me, bringing me to science museums. And so I had a lot of exposure to it. But this brought, this brought my like, you know, passing like, oh yeah, like science is neat into like, oh wow, science is what I have to do. Because at that time, certainly I was, you know, very myopic and was kind of like the only way to save all the species is to become a scientist. And so I like, I, I like picked out this undergrad program at Connecticut College because they had a specific certificate program devoted to conservation issues and conservation biology and environmental science. And I was like, that's what I have to do because it like, it comes with like a paid internship. You get all this extra training. I was like, I need to go there and do that thing. And that was like a bit of a risk because you had to like apply for it and like get in and it was competitive and whatever. But I was like suddenly so motivated and I, I went and did that and I like got in and I had this like amazing undergrad experience. Yeah, like just just learning about what conservation was and finally getting some science background and getting really excited. So that's how I kind of got into it is this weird, this weird mix, I think, of like some coincidental events and very oddly, yeah, East Asian martial arts were kind of what started it. And I think all of that has kind of spiraled and, ex- and expanded in lots of ways since then. But to avoid rambling endlessly on this question, I think that's the, <laughs> <laughs> that's how, it, that's how the real, you know, the, the initial contact was made with conservation as a field. That is so cool. And so unique. The fact that you were able to connect these two seemingly different things, mm. these different life experiences something that you were completely entrenched in as well as just an observation in the world as you were finally exposed to it and then connecting those two disciplines together. That's just so cool. Like when you look back, it's like, wow. And you still study martial arts now. Like you have black belts and brown belts and blue belts and (laughs) and it's like you're fluent in like how many different martial arts? I mean, fluent in the sense of like languages. Yeah, I think, yeah, like, you can compare it to languages. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You have ones with common roots and ones that are totally unrelated to other ones. And yeah, I, I mean, again, of course, these two things are always interacting with each other, right? Like my conservation career has affected my martial arts so much and vice versa. And I think because I've been an academic now and been interested in conservation, I've had to travel all the time, all the time 
you know, I haven't, I haven't lived in the same place for more than like a year and a half in a long time. And that has meant that I've had to move around a lot. And one of the interesting advantages of that is as a martial artist, anyway, I'm always exposed to new approaches, new disciplines, new people. And so I've been learning such a diversity of techniques, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I have definitely lost count of how many schools I've studied at and I've lost count of how many like certificates I have from various martial arts programs and whatnot. But yeah, you know, I think I would consider myself today someone who practices four different martial arts, like pretty consistently. And then I've probably, you know, had certifications in like 15 or 16 or something. And it's like, you know, and I'm the, it, 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 that's less of like, a, oh, wow, so impressive and more like a dang, this guy moves a lot <laughs> kind of thing, you know? But yeah, yeah, because we just celebrated this past weekend. You just got your blue belt in jujitsu. Like, yeah. holy freaking crap. That was like, a, that was a, yeah. I mean, that was a big one for me, I think. You talk, you, I love your language analogy. And mm-hmm. I think, I think for me, you know, going to Brazilian jujitsu from my background in, you know, by now, I think my background is much more strong in karate, Muay Thai, boxing, you know, a lot of what, what martial artists will call a striking art to one that's on the ground. It's a grappling art. And so this was really like switching from like romance languages. This would be like, if someone was like pretty good, like almost fluent in like Italian, Spanish, and French. And you're like, all right, cool. Let's learn Mongolian. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's kind of how it was for me. And so, you know, like a blue belt is a beginning step. And, you know, I really consider myself finally starting to train for real, but yeah, I'm, I'm still out there learning Mongolian. <laughs> and so that's been, yeah, very oh, satisfying. Awesome. So, so let's, we're obviously not even near close to done with academic <laughs> oh, career. Yeah, so we've made right. it through undergrad and yeah. then, yeah, I'm old by the way. So no, you're not. <laughs> Jesus. So, but, but let's continue on. So, okay. You have this fantastic undergrad experience and the, the seeds were really planted. Like, this is, this is my life. Like, yeah, this, this is, is what, what I want to do to for sure. So what did you do next? So, I mean, I know that you stayed in academia, mm-hmm. but, but why, and, mm-hmm. and what did you end up studying? So I guess to answer the first question, which is what did I do next after undergrad? The one word answer to that is I struggled. <laughs> you know, I, I finished my undergrad right after the huge economic crash. I also, I was so intense about getting a million different experiences in my undergrad that I, I, what do you call that? I like overbooked or whatever. I I took way more classes than you were supposed to all the time. And then I focused all my effort on getting straight A's every semester, no matter what. And then I was like the president of a martial arts club and I was like doing all this other stuff. And so I just like, I was so, and again, this is probably that like martial arts discipline thing, but I was like so over-disciplined that I didn't pay attention to like what other things I needed to be doing to move forward with my career in conservation. I was too busy thinking about like, let me get these short-term goals done to have the larger view of like, well, what do I need to do to be competitive for those jobs or what have you? And then of course, because of the economy crashed, there weren't none of those jobs. And so I eventually somehow someone was like, oh, well, you need to go to grad school to be a biologist. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, okay. I, what's that? You know, and, <laughs> and I just, I hadn't been spending the time like getting research experience. I'd just been taking five extra classes and doing all this crazy stuff because I thought that's what you needed to do. I thought you just needed to like be smart and work hard. You know, it turns out like you need to know people and like, you know, get advice and get mentoring. And I just, I just didn't really have a lot of that. And also, you know, adding to this weird snafu, the, the really good like conservation and ecology professor at my school that was doing the kind of stuff that I was into. He was away in Japan for like a year and a half of the time when I should have been getting mentored by him. So that was just a bad, you know, bad luck kind of thing. But essentially I finished my undergrad 
had not gotten into any graduate programs, had been rejected from quite a few for having no like real research experience, or at least not knowing how to sell what I did have very well. I didn't know what they wanted to hear, even if I had a lot of research experience. And then there were no jobs anywhere. And so I really struggled. <laughs> and that was really hard. You know, I, I finished, you know, in like, in like the top of my class. And so we, you know, I got all these like awards and stuff for being like such a great scholar and what have you and all these like titles. And I was like, wow, like that means I get a job. Right. And the economy was like, no, are you kidding? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I, I struggled mostly. And I spent a lot of time uh, applying to and getting rejected from tons of field jobs. And like, luckily that professor, his name is Bob Askins. He's a fantastic ornithologist and just a really cool guy. You know, he came back and like kind of found me in this like struggling position right before I graduated. And he was like, what on earth? Like, all right, let me sit you down and like, we'll figure this out. You know, so he helped me get a, a short term summer job doing some field research on birds. And I took an ornithology class with him my last semester. And that's actually how the bird stuff started. Like up until then, I was way more like, I guess, insect oriented in terms of my natural history. But he yeah, he was like, OK, this is how you have to get into graduate school. These are the types of jobs you should be doing. And you need to just like take a couple years to just just do field work and get that experience. And, you know, that was a pretty weirdly disillusioning and devastating time, I think. And I think anybody in our generation is pretty familiar with that feeling. You know, I think a lot of us spend our childhoods in the nineties getting like in early two thousands, getting built up and getting told like, yeah, you're going to work hard. You're going to go to college and everything's going to be great. You know? And then a lot of us were like, Oh, Hey, the economy crashed. Where are all the jobs? Why are the wages so low? You know, I think we've all encountered that. And that was for me, that was when I really hit hard because there weren't a lot of jobs in conservation. Everything, everything was retracting. You know, there was all this, yeah, what do they call that? Oh, that's a good word for that. I can't remember. But like that sort of, that sort of economic drawing in of everything. And so all these opportunities, well, you know, just dried up. Uh, so I, I worked in Connecticut for the National Audubon Society and hung out with these two graduate students that were doing this project and they were my bosses. And I just like absolutely super, super, super looked up to these people. And they taught me so much. One of them is, uh, Kevin Bergio, who's a absolutely fantastic parrot researcher and macro ecologist. And also just like a cool dude. Like he's like a punk rock style guy. And he's like, <laughs> you know, and he's just like, he's got all these tattoos. And then you talk to him and he just can like, he'll just go on about like a Bayesian statistics. And you're like, well, what a person, what a human being. So him and, and Chris Field, who's a absolutely brilliant scientist as well. Also amazing kind of stats. And, and they were teaching me like, oh, hey, well, this is what you have to do to get into grad school. And these are the things you should know. And I was learning also like, well, how do you act when you're a scientist? And what kind of things do you talk about? You know, and it was just, it was a good experience in that sense. Um, and I went from there to having no job. And I like worked at a Trader Joe's for like, I don't know, six, seven months, just being like, what is happening? And then eventually got super lucky, got another like cool research technician job that was really oriented towards learning. It was kind of like a miniature master's degree. Like they'd have you work to like earn your keep. And then at the same time, you'd be conducting your own independent research and getting advised on it by PhD students and postdocs and, you know, and researchers and stuff. And that was really cool. And I, and it was one of those things where it was this internship program where they had, you know, they had like four openings and like, I don't know how many hundreds of people would apply. And like, somehow I got like super, super lucky and got a position there. And, you know, you, you get paid absolute peanuts, but you're like, we were living on a research station in the middle of nowhere in Florida in this super, super unique desert ecosystem, which you don't picture when you think of Florida, but it's like these scrub deserts. They have all these endemic species, you know, just very different. And I just got to stew in that and like hang out with other academics. And, and again, like learn about research, or whatever. That was huge. That really made a big difference. And then from there, I went to California 
And I worked at another research station uh, on some projects that were kind of joint Cornell University and UC Berkeley. And so I was, I guess, employed by both of those somehow and doing research on woodpeckers. At the other place, I should say, I was doing research on these endangered cooperatively breeding jays that live out there that are just super neat birds. And so the bird thing was really happening. And, and I kind of, you know, it kind of, the everyone's always like, oh yeah, Charles is a bird guy. I'm like, well, I mean, we can get into what kind of guy I am. But the bird thing happened because like, I was getting jobs doing birds and like I wasn't getting jobs doing dragonflies or whatever, but I was applying for them, you know, but, but birds kept happening and that kind of stacked up and obviously, you know, no shade on, on like the bird world, like ornithology is amazing. And I love all the people I've met through it. But so it was just sort of this hopping around for two and a half years. And I worked in California for a while near Monterey. It was just beautiful. And then I came back to Massachusetts because I got into grad school that spring in the exact place I wanted to go to grad school, which was Tufts University. And then I worked at a totally non-academic job and I went and I was like conservation research, I don't know, seasonal biologist or something for this really cool NGO on the North Shore of Massachusetts called the Trustees of Reservations. And I did a bunch of shorebird conservation and mm-hmm. restoration work, which is fantastic. Yeah, I guess one major thing I should mention is like while I was in Florida, I went to my first scientific conference because of this whole miniature masters thing that was so nice. And it just lined up with this conference in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a place to witness. (laughs) And (laughs) I mean, that was really like the only other thing going on at that huge hotel other than this ornithology conference was a gigantic biker convention of this biker gang called the Buffalo Soldiers, which is like this really cool, like all black, like biker organization. I don't think you probably want to call them gangs anymore, but you know, and they all had their like colors on and stuff. And I ended up actually spending more of my time talking to those guys <laughs> than the professors and stuff. Cause I was so intimidated by the ornithologists. And I remember like all those guys would have their, the chapter that they're from on their vest. And I like walked by this group of dudes and all their vests were like Buffalo soldiers, Boston mass. And I was like, Whoa, what's up Boston? And I went over and just started talking to these guys. And like, they were so much more like outgoing and easy to talk to than like the academics. But, but in the process of me being at my first academic conference and being terrified of everyone, I remember seeing a guy's name tag and it said J Michael Reed, uh, in like really messy handwriting. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've been reading this guy's papers for like two years. He was this like scientist that like, like my whole thing was like, I loved behavioral ecology. That's what I figured out in college. And I was like, how do I apply animal behavior to conservation? There's gotta be a cool way to do that. This was my kind of like very slow academic maturation. And he wrote a really amazing chapter in a book a textbook about like how to do that. And he wrote all the, he wrote like a really good review paper on it. And like, he had all this stuff, but yeah, like we, in fact, it's not just that, you know, behavioral ecology is relevant to conservation. If you do conservation without understanding behavior, it's not going to work. And like, because classical conservation biology, I know this is a huge tangent, but classical conservation biology started with just numbers and like numerical models to represent species and their populations. And like, obviously that's important because you need to get results and you need to influence policy. But he was saying like, yeah, but you have to work the behavior in there. You have to understand what these animals are doing. Otherwise your predictions are going to be way off. And I just thought that was amazing. So I see this guy's name tag and I'm like legitimately having a heart attack. And I just like, yeah, yeah, was so bad. (laughs) And I like woodenly like stumble over to my like boss from this place I was working in Florida. Cause he was like, our, you know, we were like little ducklings following him around being like, Oh God, you know, <laughs> I mean, the other interns were way more bold and relaxed than I was. I was just totally overwhelmed. 
And I walked over to him and I was just like, Ugh, can you introduce me to Michael Reed? And he, he was like, who? And they looked over and was like, oh, Michael, that guy's great. Yeah, of course. And he, you know, just like typical, like old white guys with huge beards. They kind of like <laughs> march up to each other. Oh, Michael, good to see you. Bah, 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 bah. You know, like it was just this whole thing. And they were both like so happy. And he's like, yeah, this is my intern, Charles. Like he really wants to meet you. And I was like, oh, God. And I, I could not believe it. Like this is especially now having been in academia a lot more. Like, I cannot begin to explain how rare and ridiculous this is to march up to like a tenured professor who has a lot of stuff going on, who like has published a ton, who like is not a small name. And I was just like, I love your work. I was just absolutely word vomiting. Like, I, I, I don't know if anything I said made any sense, but I was just like, oh, you're, you're so cool. And your research and I read this paper and blah, blah, blah. And he was just kind of looking at me and he was like, hey, do you want to just go sit down? We can just let's just talk. And I was like, what? And literally, like, he sat down with me at this conference and we chatted for almost two hours. Wow. And it was mind-blowing, you know. And the biggest thing we talked about, and this is a major theme in my approach to conservation, and I think that came from my, my martial arts stuff a lot, was just, you know, I kept saying, I, I see all this research people are doing and I don't get how it benefits conservation. Like, everyone's researching endangered species, which is great, but, like, people aren't organizing their questions around solving problems. And I find that so confusing. And people keep like telling me that I'm not doing good science because everything I'm interested in has to do with like, how do we inform this policy or how do we solve this issue? You know, how do we really address those problems? And he was like, well, yeah, that's the kind of research I do. We call that applied research. And like some people really hate it, but that's what I love to do. And I was like, oh, applied research, like I have a word for it now, you know? And we just had this whole rant about that. And I just found it so exciting to know that like you could do a, you could do a career in academic applied conservation research and I was like this is what I'm going to do I have to go to grad school with this guy this has to happen you know and, and I yeah I kept in touch with him I got really lucky I learned how to apply <laughs> to grad school and finally did a good job at it and, and yeah I ended up getting into into Tufts University where I did my PhD for five and a half years which was a whole yeah is, is he the guy that you show me the picture of yeah oh yeah. my god yeah 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 that's him uh, he's the best he's like honestly one of the best human beings I've ever met like that guy like changed my life santa claus he's, yeah 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 he's got <laughs> he's this big beard and, santa claus. yeah he's amazing looking. yeah and he's more like a wizard now like he 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 his hair he like grew his hair out during the pandemic oh my I, god. I saw him for the first time you know since the pandemic recently when i was at home visiting my family because it had been a long time since I've seen my family. Yeah. And I got to go bird watching with him and he's just got like super long, like beautiful flowing hair now. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful. He's a majestic human being. Michael Reed is, is great. So, so that was how my PhD went. And, and, you know, and people say, and I will say, if anyone listening to this is interested in applying for graduate school, especially a PhD, which is a very long haul, you know, the big thing to focus on is what vibes do you get from your potential advisor? Like that person is going to be so important. And, and yes, a lot of people who are more on like the kind of elite academic side will say like, no, 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 just see how many papers they publish. And like, you just want that name. You just want that name. But if you just want that name, then, you know, it's, it can be hard because you're not going to have anyone to support you. And I was, I was lucky to find someone like him who, you know, he does a lot of amazing work, but he also just really just cares about his students a lot. And so it was like having another dad, you know, and, and I was still so clueless when I started graduate school that to have him to kind of like hold my hand through a lot of this stuff was, was amazing. And yeah, and I just, I had this incredible, very fun, very exhausting, totally tumultuous five and a half years of doing my PhD and like traveling all over the world and doing research in Hawaii of all places. And, and yeah, and that, and that was just Amazing. I, I loved it. it. It was such a good time, but that's how, that was how that next chapter happened. Wow. And then what did you, 
end up studying like for your PhD and how did you decide? Cause it sounds like, which is super fun, which I really want to dive in with you in a little bit mm. is you have so many different interests and <laughs> which I feel is a strength, yes. which you have come to learn and academia has actually gone against you. Sure, absolutely. I view as from an actual world standpoint mm. as a huge leg up. And I'm really excited to see where your very close future is going to go. Cause I see it as a big, this is awesome. <laughs> you don't just like study one bacterium and that's all you know. Like right. you, you have a very wide breadth of disciplines that you're very knowledgeable in. So, but before we get to those, what did you end up studying? And mm. then how the heck did you even decide yeah. to study this? Sounds like you could have done anything. I mean, sometimes, sometimes these decisions get made for you a little bit. Mm. You know, I, I, I definitely was, I was learning a lot, you know, but I, I, I don't think I, cause I see a lot of people starting their PhDs and they're like, I'm going to do exactly this and exactly that. And they just, and they just knock it out and it's amazing. And, and I was not there. I was not there at all. I was still very much trying to, you know, I knew I wanted to do behavior stuff. I didn't have a, what's called a study system. I didn't have a species or an ecosystem I was going to focus on, but two major thing, major things happened. One of them was there was this brand new fellowship program starting at Tufts that came from a big NSF grant called an IGERT an interdisciplinary graduate education research traineeship. Wow, got it. And and basically those are these really now there's called something else, but basically it's when like an institution gets a huge huge bunch of money and they are allowed to like competitively choose graduate students to give them specific training in how to work across academic disciplines to do stuff. So obviously like you know, if, if I think again about my martial arts background like this was the Bruce Lee side, right? Like the, the Japanese Budo side was like, you need to do something. You need to help people. You need to protect things. And that was what got me into conservation. But then in terms of like how I wanted to do conservation, Bruce Lee was the big influence because he was all about, and this was what Jeet Kune Do was, right? He was like, you need to take whatever works from whatever discipline. He was all about like, because up until like Bruce Lee, really, there were, there were arguably there were some people actually in the 1800s who did this a bit, but he was the big one. He was like, everyone's so siloed. There's the karate guys and they talk crap about the wrestlers and the wrestlers talk crap about the Muay Thai guys and whatever. And he was like, we need to do away with this and just take whatever works and combine it and, and be interdisciplinary. And so from him, I learned like, yeah, you need to have this. If you're going to be practical, if you're going to be applied, then you need to do whatever's going to get the job done. You need to not sit there and be arrogant and not want to learn new things. You have to constantly be humble, constantly expose yourself to something new. And I had been doing that in martial arts already. All through college, you know, I spent all my time, I was like an Aikido Jeet Kune Do guy and suddenly I'd go hang out with wrestlers and get my butt kicked and then like, you know, teach them some stuff or whatever. And, and so I, and so getting into this interdisciplinary graduate program was incredible because I got to do the same thing, obviously a lot less butt kicking involved, but, <laughs> yeah. but like I got to do the same thing with academics. Oh, guys involved with this, like, oh, yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just, you know, I, I was suddenly, it was called water diplomacy and it was about how to sustainably solve and this is not just environmental sustainability. This is societal and economic sustainability, you know, hydrological sustainability. But basically I got brought into this program and I was the token ecologist. Like it was all these like international relations people, engineers, hydrologists, yeah, civil engineer people, agriculture specialists, political scientists. There was like a guy with a law background and they were like, yeah, we need an environmental person. Do you want to, you want to just be part of this? And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. 
And so I was the token ecologist. I was the guy where like, you know, all, all these like way more intelligent, amazing, super talented grad students who like already had masters and stuff. They were all like, oh, blah, 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 this water resources issue. And like, have you read Ostrom's something, something principles? And I'm like, uh, and I would just kind of raise my hand every now and then like mm, birds. And then people would be like, oh yeah, birds. And like, and that was kind of how I went. So I, so I, that was, that made my graduate experience really unusual because I was doing my PhD in biology. I think the actual degree is ecology, behavior, and evolution. And so I had to do all that stuff and like take those courses and, and do my qualifying exams and blah, blah, blah. But then in addition to all that work, I was basically doing like a master's in like sustainable water management where I had to take a separate set of qualifying exams. I had to do all this other coursework, go to all these seminars and workshops with those people. But I was simultaneously like becoming a biologist and learning to be a super, super applied person who knew all sorts of crazy stuff about water that... I would never have been exposed to as just a biologist. And so without knowing it, I was starting to do Jeet Kune Do in my academic work. And that made my graduate career very difficult because I had to do, you know, almost twice as much work as the normal PhD. But, you know, I was like, I was publishing papers both on the biology of this endangered bird in Hawaii that I was studying and on like, well, how do we do a better job of including the environment in our decision making around water? You know, and so I was getting these like two prongs to my work and I was learning to slowly at the end when I finished my PhD dissertation, which is a horrifically long document. At the end, I was starting to tie those back together again and applying those ideas from sustainable water management to Hawaii, which is a place that has some water issues and that is going to have quite a few more <laughs> as time moves on. So and then the, the, the Hawaii thing happened for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons was that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had a lot of very particular questions about a couple endangered birds there, and they really wanted answers. And my PhD advisor was one of the people who had who was like a big expert in one of those species. And they were like, "Hey, we don't know anything about this other one. It's called the Alaiula or Hawaiian common gallinule. Very mysterious, weird, hilarious birds. Actually, a lot of very important." Um, cultural relevance for them too. They, they play a big role in a lot of Hawaiian mythology, really neat animal, but they were very mysterious and we needed to figure out a lot more about their behavior to conserve them better, which is like totally my jam. So I got started working on that bird because the Fish and Wildlife Service came to him and was like, Hey, we have a little extra money. We need to get someone out here and we need to, st we need to start studying the movement of these birds. And then I got, I got brought in for that and just had this whole adventure of, you know, four years spending every summer in Hawaii chasing these weird birds around and like just like getting hot and sweaty and just having a very interesting time and then going to like Alaska to do genetics work on them and, and crazy stuff like that. So yeah, that's that's in as much of a nutshell as I can get you to uh, for like the absolutely monumental experience of doing a PhD. <laughs> Great. And I'm so glad that you really just started to bring up your very big interest in water. Mm. And this is something that I know, cause you know, I've talked about this so much. This is really where you have planted your flag because you see a big issue and it's going to become an astronomical issue if things don't change. So, but before we get into that, what is this water crisis that's going on? What exactly are you seeing? Cause I think that this is one of those issues that has been uh, boiling for lack of better terms behind the <laughs> nice. scenes yeah, yeah. that no one's actually really talking about. Mm. And it's going to start being a really big thing. And I think that this year and this summer, so we're currently recording this, it is 
August, what, 2nd or 3rd, something like that, 2021. Mm -hmm. And we just had one of the hottest summers on record. Right. And there is crazy droughts going on. There's fires rampaging across um, the U.S. right now. So we're seeing, we're, we're starting to see this firsthand. Mm-hmm. So what have you learned? What what exactly is this water crisis? And what have you discovered? What have you studied? And what are you starting to advocate for now? Very, very well phrased question. That is, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, I'll have to, I'll have to think my way a few steps back here. But yeah, wow, thank you for that. That's a that's a really good way of, of I think I think I learned more from your question now than I have from my own thinking on this in quite a while. So so well said. But I think so the the water crisis globally speaking i think is a lot of different crises that people a lot of people now treat as though they're different but they're not in my opinion and that's a big thing i think that i'm starting to put forward as an academic and as a conservation scientist as i sort of gain as i advance in my career and and gain a little bit more of the ability to say hey here's my opinion maybe someone should listen that's one of the opinions i'm trying to put forward is like these aren't separate but i'll i'll kind of i'll give you the separate crises if that works so let's see we have a water security crisis and water security is is one of those lingos i learned from hanging out with all like the political science and international diplomacy people in the igrt program and it refers to it's, it's usually at the, the the population or state some some jurisdictional level it essentially refers to how uh, safe the water supply is in a number of different senses for a group of people so that could be a city that could be a state, that could be a country. And so that could be, do they have a reliable water supply? Do they have clean water to drink or to bathe or do all these things that we need to do as living organisms, but especially as people? Is that under threat? And, and different threats could be, well, could someone upstream cut off your water basically with a dam and say, no, no, it's ours now. Or could they take so much out to irrigate their crops that you don't have any water left? I mean, we're doing that to Mexico right now. Could that be... Uh, ecological collapse that leads to algal blooms that then these algae produce cyanotoxins or other chemicals that then kill people when they drink the water, you know, or is it pollution from some company, right? Like Flint, Michigan. What have we done about that lately? Right. But that's a real thing. And that's happening all over the world. And, you know, Flint gets covered because it's in our country or some might argue it doesn't get covered. And I think that's also a reasonable critique, but that those are water security issues. And that's a crisis. We know that the, there's probably some numerical index of water security out there. I don't know it because I'm not a sociologist, but we know that water security as a whole, quantitatively or qualitatively, is declining worldwide. Everyone's access to clean water and the water that they need to live a good life is going away. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. But of course, the major one which you're already referencing very well is climate change. Uh, a lot of a lot of hydrologists, for example, and maybe because if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but hydrologists have always been saying climate change is water change. And the more that I really look at it, the more I'm like, yeah, you guys are right. Like the temperatures, yes, that's going to affect stuff. But like the shift in the distribution of where, when and how water happens on this planet is going to change so profoundly and is, I should say, is already changing so profoundly that all of these systems we as, that we have as human societies have been developing for thousands and thousands of years to manage our water, a lot of those are becoming obsolete or irrelevant to what the water is now doing in the natural environment, which means that a lot of people aren't going to have water security. I don't have the exact statistics fresh in my head anymore, but I, 
I think some of the projections for as early as like 2050, we're saying that like more than half the planet, I mean, we're talking billions of people are going to be at one point in the annual cycle are going to be in a, in a, a state of what they call critical water security, where like they're, they literally don't have enough water to live. And, you know, you don't need to have not enough water to live for more than what, a week to die, right? So it doesn't matter if they're not critical all year. If you're critical for a month, that could be a lot of people in a lot of danger. Um, so that's the water security crisis. The, you know, another one that, that is, of course, a big part of my work as a conservation biologist and as a naturalist is the freshwater biodiversity crisis, which a lot of really amazing research has been coming, off, coming out about this recently. But if you want to think just as a conservation professional, which I know a lot of our listeners are really into that, some people will think, okay, well, we should look at what the most threatened parts are. And all of those are fresh water. The WWF did a fantastic study. I think they finished it in 2016 or 2017, where they were they they used huge amounts of data from all over the place on, I think, primarily vertebrate populations of animals, but like a bajillion different species planet-wide mm. to look at how fast populations of different species are declining all over the planet. Everybody's declining, let's be clear. Like no biodiversity is not somewhat in trouble. You know, this is, we're all here fighting the good fights and I'm not trying to draw lines. They divided biodiversity into freshwater, marine and terrestrial. And they have this super depressing graph that shows all of those lines going way down because everybody's hurting right now. But the decline in freshwater biodiversity, I want to say was more than double the rate of what we're seeing in terrestrial, you know, you know, and if you think about terrestrial systems, like the Amazon is getting cut down, like Indonesia is like burning, you know, the, like the Pampas are going away and like all these, all these amazing ecosystems are getting encroached by agriculture or deforestation or pollution or whatever. So like obviously terrestrial systems are really in trouble. And to think that freshwater systems are like that much more dramatically messed up, it might even be three times, like that's scary. Like that's where the real damage is being done. That's scary enough. To get even scarier, if you start looking at freshwater biodiversity, it also makes up way more of the species on the planet than we expect. If you look at just the number of like animal species in the world, something like, I'm trying to remember now, it's, it's huge. It's, it's like 10 or 20% of them are freshwater species. Mm. Not even like ones that use freshwater because all animals need to use freshwater in some capacity. Obviously, marine things have all sorts of systems for dealing with salts and whatnot, so they're not as directly relevant, but like everything terrestrial at least cannot survive without water in some way. But just thinking about the things that live inside of fresh water, you know, the actual surface of fresh water on the planet makes up, I can't remember what it is, like 1% of Earth's surface or less is fresh water. And yet 10 to 20% of all the species on the planet are like directly living in freshwater as their habitat, oh my God. right? So it's, it's hyper-concentrated, hyper-valuable biodiversity, and it's getting annihilated out there. And so one of the things that, that I've written about already with some really brilliant co-authors, and I'm working on some more stuff kind of raising attention about this, is like, we need to realize that, you know, we, the, the, the water security crisis and the freshwater biodiversity crisis are not separate. Those are, those are very much related for a number of reasons, right? Whenever we manage water more to increase our water security, a lot of the time we are hurting biodiversity even worse. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be a trade-off. And that's a big part of what my, my research was the, with the IGER was, was trying to help policymakers and decision makers find ways of getting ecology, getting species, getting animals and, and wildlife to the table 
getting them to the bargaining table and including them in our sort of for lack of a better word, calculus of figuring out how to manage our water. Because there are win there are amazing win-win situations that you can simultaneously address both of those crises, everybody wins. Mm. What right? are some of those? Well, the big thing that, that's come out recently, and there's a lot of push for it and not a lot of doing, which mm. is very frustrating. But uh, And again, WWF has talked about this. The Nature Conservancy talks about this a lot. And there are so many different terms and euphemisms for it. One of my favorites is nature-based solutions. So that's a lot of that focuses around climate change, but that's finding solutions to climate change, finding solutions to water security or food insecurity that use the benefits that nature brings us, right? So, so we as scientists are probably much more familiar with the term ecosystem services. What do wild ecosystems and habitats do for us as people? And we know that there are lots of different kinds of ecosystem services and all sorts of insanely valuable ways that just having natural environments on this planet help us. You know, most directly, like if we wiped out all the natural environments on this planet, like we would probably have problems having enough air to breathe and there would be no food. And, you know, that stuff is blatant, perhaps overlooked because it's so obvious. But but there's all sorts of other stuff. Like if we're thinking about water and those two crises, you know, wetlands and aquatic habitats, they clean your water for you. They also make your water supply more reliable. When you have a massive flood which is happening increasingly in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. If you have wetlands and intact floodplain forests, bogs and things like that, then the water overbanks, it goes into those ecosystems, it causes a massive proliferation of biomass and biodiversity and just incredible natural stuff happening. And then at the same time, that water gets slowed down a lot. It gets physically obstructed and slowed down. It also gets absorbed into the environment, into the soils, into the plants. Some of it gets evapotranspired back into the atmosphere to rain again somewhere else. It goes into your aquifers, which are like long-term storage tanks for water. So you reduce your flood damages with those habitats and you gain a much more sustainable water supply. Your water security goes up. You have more chances to have more water in the future rather than just, here's a flood, it killed a million people and now all of our buildings are destroyed and we can't drink that water because, you know, like people say, stay the heck away from flood water. Like when a flood happens in an urban area, that's sewage, that's, you know, dead cats, that's, you know, it's trash. Like it just takes everything and you, you're not going to drink that. No. It's not good for anybody. All that is is destruction. <laughs> um, but if you have a flood that goes through a wetland, that's getting metabolized by an enormous diversity of microfauna, uh, of microbes, fungi, bacteria, archaea, protozoa. All these things are are metabolizing it, and the and the and it's also getting physically purified by the by the plants, the roots, the sediment. You get incredibly clean water that is sustainably provided, basically. And we didn't know this for a long time. We spent years developing all the wetlands and paving them over for parking lots because. Mosquitoes came out of them sometimes and we didn't like that or we thought they were smelly and we were like, let's get, this is useless. And we channelized our rivers to make them super straight so that the water would just go away. But all that happened was it made the flooding worse for somebody else or it took all the dirt out and put it right out to sea and that screwed up our fisheries or it made the deltas disappear. And deltas are super important habitats for all sorts of animals that we love, not to mention all these fish that we eat and birds that we like to watch. So it's incredibly interconnected and interdigitated all these different processes. And what we're learning now is like, well, wait a minute. Like, like we could be simultaneously benefiting biodiversity, saving ourselves, you know, protecting human rights and people's access to water 
and hugely increasing the bottom line. We could be saving ourselves so much money. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of really neat examples of this. Um, there's actually one really literally close to home for me where uh, the Charles River, which I am partially named after, which goes through Boston. There was some amazing work where it flooded a few times and people were really worried about it. And the Army Corps of Engineers like re-meandered parts of it. Like they made it back into like a squiggly natural looking river and they bought people's properties around it that were in the floodplain and were like, can we just buy this from you and take your land and like let this become, you know, you guys go buy a house someplace else, whatever. And they would restore the floodplains. And suddenly now like the water quality in the Charles went way up. It's mm -hmm. way more clean. The ecosystems are amazing. Flooding isn't affecting people anymore. And like that investment has saved so much money and probably some lives. You know, and things like that can be done elsewhere in the world where they'll have even bigger impacts. You know, so so the nature-based solutions train, I think, is I'm I definitely have drank the Kool-Aid on that and I'm like crazy about it. And I think it's a major, major way of simultaneously recognizing the interrelationship between the water security crisis and the ecological freshwater crisis, but also addressing them both at the same time and probably for much cheaper than we might do otherwise. Mm. So let's explore two facets of this then. Who is going to be affected by this the most if we do not stop what we're doing? Mm -hmm. If the brakes on the train yeah. are gone and we are flying 100 miles an hour and this doesn't change, mm -hmm. what is going to happen? Who is going to feel it the most? And then in all of your work that you've done so far, all of these papers that you've published, all this just knowledge that you have, how do we stop the train? Mm -hmm. How do we work on pretty much reversing what we've done and restoring these habitats? How, how does this actually get done? Mm -hmm. So what is like worst case scenario? And then like, how do we flip it around yeah. and bring things back to the way they were? Right. These are excellently practical questions here. Uh, and, you know, and I'm not going to say that I have all the answers to these and I can certainly get to what I think would work well. Mm -hmm. And I can also let you know <laughs> the places where I'm like, oh, someone else has got to figure that out. But in terms of who's being affected, I think you bring up a lot of really important social equity issues here. And I think, you know, if you look at issues in, in Flint or issues with Hurricane Katrina, you know, overtopping built infrastructure where there used to be wetlands to protect people and they're gone. And then tons of people are killed and lose their homes and have nothing. Or, you know, you, you look at the catastrophic and frequent flooding in places like Bangladesh, which is as a landscape, that's a lot of wetland and a lot of floodplain. These water related threats like flooding and drought and water quality issues, which are very tied in with both that are coming from climate change that we are seeing getting more dramatic all the time. They are affecting lower income and people of color way more often than other demographics. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And I'm not a sociologist and I'm not going to pretend to know them all. But I know that in a lot of countries, a lot of these vulnerable flood prone areas are more poorly regulated for land use. So lower income people who have nowhere else to go a lot of the time are ending up in those areas. It also gives them access to certain ecosystem services like fishing or finding the deer that come there or what have you, or even just needing to be near water when you have no sustainable supply. Those people are then are either being drawn to those places or forced into those places. And then they're extremely vulnerable. Right. And then, of course, the other major thing is like when you have money, you can adapt. If something bad happens to you, you can go build a new house or you have the ability to pay. If you're in California. Right. And there are horrible droughts. You can maybe buy into a desalination plant or you can 
excavate a much deeper well to get water that no one else is allowed to access or has the ability to access. Wealthier people can get away from this and they can keep kind of pushing, like kicking the can down the road. They can keep escaping it. But lower income people who are in these vulnerable social positions or who have been, you know, a lot of times actively marginalized by the rest of society, they're the ones who are really going to be affected by this. And they're the ones I think that we need to focus on when we're thinking about conducting these nature-based solutions, changing the way we manage infrastructure and making changes to find these win-wins. We need to concentrate on the projects that are going to protect those people because they're the ones that are going to be affected. Uh, thinking just about biodiversity, and I, th- and I think this, t- this ties in really well to a lot of the amazing uh, descriptions and, and speaking you've done on, on the field of conservation travel, but poorer, lower income people are more closely tied to the biodiversity in their area. They're more dependent, directly dependent on those ecosystem services. They can't replace that with technology. They don't have the resources for it. And like you said, a lot of those people are also relying on sometimes economies that are directly related to those ecosystems, whether those are extractive like fisheries or less extractive like ecological tourism, wildlife tourism, things like that, conservation, travel. So when we focus on these win-win situations, I think there's a lot more room to really, really benefit these people who are more threatened because you could be restoring existence, bringing back species that would give them either better fisheries, you know, better, better food supply or better sustainable job supply. But, you know, people are more likely to go you know, want to take a river cruise and see monkeys and stuff. If like the, the habitat around the river has been restored to natural floodplains that bring tigers in or what have you, you know, I think there's a lot more benefit for those people. And that, and that social equity issue is, I mean, it's not lost on me, but it's also something that I'm not a huge expert in. And I'm, I'm really interested in learning from people who know more about that, uh, how we can make this, you know, as our governments start to become more aware of the fact that, well, a, we need to do something and B, Restoring ecosystems and taking advantage of nature-based solutions is a way we should be doing it. I'm interested in learning about, like, well, okay, well, how do we how do we make sure people aren't getting left behind in that? That those benefits are going to the more to the people who are really going to need them, and we're not just you know restoring wetlands around rich suburbs all the time, right? So, right, yeah, no, that that was fantastic. That was fantastic. It's just like a win-win, like you said. It's like. No one's really going to lose here, especially in a long-term thing as climate change gets more extreme. There's like all the buffers that we've destroyed. Mm. If we just put them back in. Buffers is a great word. Yeah. 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 Like then, I mean, all these massive storms that are coming through and just washing Mm. everything out, Mm -hmm. they'll have somewhere to go and then it'd be way easier to distribute the water. It's just like, there's so many things that as this gets more on, the, the world stage, the political stage, and also too, like having traveled so much, I mean, this is a big international issue and it's getting a lot scarier and a lot bigger because there's people that, I mean, they had water security issues before. Yes. Right. And right. it's just getting with population numbers skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. There's too many people in areas and like a desert, you know, desertification, desertification mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is happening at alarming rates. And when that happens, then like, oh my God, people right. have to move or people getting pushed into these areas that For are now sure. deserts that should have been grasslands or, you know, whatever. Mm. So then that's why I'm really glad that we're talking about this and just having more ways to bring this issue up. For sure. And it's all connected. It's all connected. And the more we restore things to their former 
beautiful habitats, then the more everybody's going to benefit. And not just because like, oh, it's pretty, I hear birds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get some peepers at night with right. little froggies. <laughs> right, it's like, right. actually, this is way bigger than that. Yeah. This is way, way bigger than that. Absolutely. Very yeah. well said, yeah. So I think next, I think we be really cool. I don't know how much you can talk about it, but with all this being said and the way that that you talk about this issue and how much you care about it and how much you know about it from this very multi-pronged view of the world that you have with all your studies, you have this big paper you're working on <laughs> yeah. that you're hoping that's really going to shake the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to take my own ambitions that far, but I, yeah, I think it, it is. Yeah. So we're, so we're talking about a paper that I'm working on now that I'm hoping to be submitting soon that focuses on what I'm calling human environment water conflict. And it's, you know, it's not some, you know, massive new theory or whatever. I think it's the kind of thing that my brain is good at as like the weird little kid on the playground, you know, with ADHD who would rather watch ant lions than go play kickball or whatever. But I, I think that, you know, while I'm, I'm not the best scientist in some ways you see really amazing scientists who come up with these incredible uh, quantitative theories with diff differential equations and whatnot. Like I'm more of like a big picture thinker and I'm more just focused on the pragmatics a lot. And, and what I'm trying to put forward are some, what I would call like a synthesis where I'm just trying to say, Hey, whoa, whoa, we need to, let's really big picture here for a second and look at how, how related these issues are. And, and I think I really liked how you put it, where you were saying like, yeah, we need to understand how these are all interrelated. I think that what I'm trying to do in this paper is, is explain how, yeah, these are all interrelated and that's really scary and overwhelming. But when all these things are interrelated, that means that if you fix one, you can fix the other two. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize. So I don't want this to be like a doom and gloom thing. But what I'm writing about is this, this concept that I'm calling human environment water conflict, which I guess I would describe as understanding how whenever we are managing water, we are affecting wildlife and not just the fish in the stream, not just the marsh plants, but all sorts of things beyond that. We're affecting terrestrial biodiversity. We're affecting marine biodiversity. So bringing together fields like what's a really neat field called ecohydrology, which is the study of how water affects ecosystems, bringing that together with our study of how we manage water as a society and how we need to do it more sustainably, bringing that also together with things like what I did as a graduate student, which was developing frameworks for how to bring animals to the table, bring wildlife and ecosystems to the table, include them in that process. I'm basically trying to advocate for, hey, you know, this human environment water conflict is a thing. We are causing huge ecological problems that we don't yet recognize by how we're managing water. Some of them we recognize, of course, but a lot we don't giving a lot of examples of ones we don't necessarily see readily and then talking about, hey, we need to bring together, we need to bring people together from all these different fields to make some greater synthesis and move this forward. And I'm, what I'm really trying to say is we don't need some huge uh, new field to develop. We don't need new sciences or theories for this. We need to take what we already have. We have the tools, but we need to get them in the same darn place and we need to get those people together to have this kind of discussion. And so that, that's sort of the big idea behind it, you know? And so some of these really neat examples I've been thinking about, we usually just think about, okay, we took the water out of the stream, the fish died, it's too bad. Or, oh, we built a, we built a big dam, the fish can't get all the way up to, all the way up the river to spawn, their populations crashed, too bad. Or, or we took all the water out, 
and you know for agriculture and then the trees in the riparian area along the margins of that stream couldn't get the roots couldn't get down to the water they died okay too bad those are all very blatant direct examples we took the water we we moved the water it's gone stuff died okay and 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 that's great and there's a lot of there's a lot of research on how to address that there's really um i think the I think e-flows, environmental flows is the, is the main kind of lingo for that science now. And there's some amazing people in Europe, in the United States, in Australia especially, who have been developing this theory around e-flows. And what I'm proposing is to extend that idea beyond the river channel mm. to recognize how when you mess with fresh water, you mess with everything. So e-flows is about, oh, well, if we have a dam or if we're drawing water from a river, let's always make sure that there's enough there to keep those ecosystems intact and let's figure out what that fish needs maybe it only needs water at certain times of year so if we use the water this time of year store some up in the dam and then release it at the right time we can do enough for that for that fish to spawn or for that riparian bird to have its little ground nest on the sandbar or something and that's amazing science and i love that and it's so applied and so perfect but i'm you know thinking bigger picture i'm like well gosh you know when we mess with water we're not just messing with those shorebirds or with those fish you know, we're affecting the, the dynamics of the insects that emerge from the water. We're affecting the groundwater systems that are connected to those rivers and whether or not there's floodplain habitat. A, a good example is, you know, looking at other ways people are using water. When I was living in Spain, I, I did a, a postdoc in Spain right after finishing my PhD. I was working at this beautiful, incredible wild landscape called Doñana. And a lot of it is protected national park it was actually the first place that the wwf ever protected oh wow yeah it was it was their like first big achievement it was like literally the year that they founded they were like this was their big thing they were doing was doñana and we can talk about that another time it's an incredible <laughs> place but it's all these protected areas with all of these ground it's mediterranean so it's very dry and it, and so all of these these wetland ecosystems inside doñana are like groundwater fed the water's coming burbling up from under the ground, coming from these aquifers, and they're wet for certain times of year, and all these endangered frogs and super rare birds will nest in them and stuff, and then the water's gone and whatever. And there's a certain amount of time that those pools have to be wet for all that to happen. And what's happening now is that people, a lot of them, there are lots, lots of illegal stuff going on, but, but even if you ignore that, perfectly legally, lots of people outside the borders of the national park are pumping groundwater up to irrigate strawberries and like a lot of the strawberries we get in the u.s are from spain and they're delicious <laughs> but it's like uh what is that movie uh there will be blood i think where they're like arguing over oil you know and like basically if all that stuff's underground and your property line is between it basically overlaps with the whole aquifer if someone puts their straw in on one side on, on the legal side outside the protected area starts sucking all the water out what happens to the stuff inside <laughs> right? Like it's still gone. And so what's happening now is that people using all the water outside is actually leading to less water inside the park. And now all these species are really endangered, but they're not doing anything illegal, are they? But we didn't pay attention to the water that wasn't in the river channel. So in my mind, that's the exact same problem. It's just all happening underground, right? Mm -hmm. Or what if we think about water in the sky? Okay. We're getting a little trippy here, but, but just bear with me. We have learned, for example, through eco-hydrology, and now we need to connect it to these other frameworks. We need to connect this to how we manage water. We've learned that if you cut down trees, let's say in a, in a valley in the Amazon basin, the next valley over is going to get less rain now 
because those trees aren't pumping water into the sky through their roots, through evapotranspiration. So literally, if you, if you have like a national park in one spot and then you, you know, because you need to support the local economy, what have you, political reasons, this other neighboring valley like has to get deforested because, you know, we've conserved one part and we have to compromise, right? That park is deforested. Suddenly, the moisture that's supposed to be in the air of that cloud forest and supposed to drift over and take care of the ecosystem in that national park that has evolved over millions of years to be supported on that sky water, right? Those clouds, it's all gone. So then you start to get all this damage in the national park, the bromeliads and all of these plants that live inside of trees and their only source of water is from the sky and they all dry out. Some of them need to fill with water and there are like, there are species of salamander and frog that are like their whole ecology and natural history depends on cloud water and nothing else. They never touch the ground their whole lives. They spawn inside of these bromeliads. They'll make babies inside of them or they'll, or they'll go in them when things get too dry as a place to hide. All that water's gone. Where do they go? And we've seen species of, of salamander that are endemic, you know, to these treetops going extinct in national parks. They're in areas that are totally protected and they're not getting affected by fungi or what have you. But the big thing is just the clouds are gone. We, we took the water from the river in the sky and didn't think about it because we're too busy thinking about the rivers on the ground. And the rivers on the ground are super important. Okay, and the last, last weirdest example. So we've talked about rivers in the ground, rivers in the sky. There are also rivers in animals. Okay, and I know this is the trippiest one, but right, there's, there's rivers of animals, like rivers that are animals that move across landscapes. If you think about the African savanna, and you know a lot more about this than I do, so, so pipe in if I start wandering off here, but, but elephants and, a lot, and wildebeest and a lot of other very large mammals that are super charismatic, super cool, and super ecologically important, right? They, they change the whole darn landscape when they're around. You know, elephants will tear down trees and stuff. Their migrations, the timing of those migrations and how they cover space, like their space use and, and how they choose their route is all based around water. You know, with elephants, I think they have these matriarchal social systems. And apparently there's a huge emphasis for those females, like the ones that become matriarchs that are effective, that can protect their families. The way they do that is by remembering where all the water is. And when we start, again, maybe draining water um, from, from the ground, if we're, if we're sucking it up with pumping to put it someplace we want it for crops, or if we are, a lot of people, I think in a lot of, in a lot of parts of, I want to say sub-Saharan Africa, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, are heavily dependent on livestock for their, for their livelihoods. Uh, they need to get their cows watered, right? And with climate change, those watering holes are starting to disappear. And what's happening is that people, because they need to, because they need to live, are monopolizing those watering holes. Their, their cows are congregating around those watering holes such that wildlife can't access them a lot of the time during the day or in the morning. And so that's, that's not only changing the migratory routes of these super important species, again, that, that river of animals back and forth, it's also making it so that when they do need to get water, they have to do it at night, which as far as I understand it and what I've read is a much more dangerous time to be a wildebeest drinking water. You can't see the crocodile that might be coming out of the you water. You can't see that line. You can't see that line. Exactly. And they've shown that like mortality rates go up. And also the amount of time they have to spend looking around goes up. So they waste more of their energy being scared than eating or drinking. And so this is one of those weird, really indirect conflicts that we are creating because we need the water too. And if we can find ways to maybe find those win-wins, we can be protecting people, protecting those, those ranchers who need to, you know, who are literally dependent on those farm animals, but also 
protecting the, the lions, the gazelle, you know, all these wildlife populations that are inherently dependent on that, on that water. And then <laughs> the final step into weirdness. So we have these rivers of animals. There's also these, these flows of animals that are like very literal in terms of food. There's like a nutritional flow of animals. So a lot of wetland habitats are very dense with aquatic insects, especially, but various aquatic arthropods, you know, things with shells that are carapaces and kind of segmented joints, little buggy things that, that they need to live in freshwater just to exist. And what's really interesting is that they are a different food chain than stuff that lives on land. So the base of the food chain for terrestrial systems that we're familiar with, Colorado, that's, you know, you got some grass, you got some plants, caterpillars eat it, grasshoppers eat it, and then other things eat them. And then on you go up the food chain. What starts with grass and what starts with terrestrial plants has a certain nutritional value because plants are capable of creating certain nutritional elements, sugars, carbohydrates, blah, blah, that we're, that we're using. What's fascinating about these things in freshwater environments is that the base of the food chain is often not plants in the sense that we think of. They're not flowers and grasses. They're algae and diatoms and these weird microbes that are not, they're not plants. They do very different stuff on a cellular level, which means that the nutrition that they create is actually a lot of times way more valuable mm. than the plants. Uh, to get specific, they're producing these polyunsaturated fatty acids or PUFAs, which is way more fun to say, <laughs> that are, uh, we've learned that these are insanely important for vertebrate development, for like your brain and your nerves. Like if you don't get these in your diet, it's hard to develop those things. And there's actually anthropologists who think that a big part of how humans became super brainy is that we, just, we ate tons of foods from these water environments that had high PUFA concentrations, which gave us enough fats to make a giant brain. It's, things like, it's crazy. But what happens is that when we start messing with the water, we change the community of insects, for example, that's able to live in that water, or we decrease their numbers, the abundance of insects coming out of these that are basically, you know, flowing out of these water habitats, be they rivers or floodplains or marshes or, you know, watering holes in Africa, that food supply crashes. And suddenly all these animals don't have access to that food chain. They can't get those, those very specific molecules that they need to develop their brains. And there's been some really brilliant research on birds, especially showing that if they don't get enough of that food, their babies don't survive as well. They don't, you know, fewer of them survive to fledging. The ones that, that do fledge don't live as long or don't reproduce as well. Even the following year, there's these impacts on the populations. You know, a study came out in the last couple of years showing that in North America, we have lost something like 3 billion birds since 1950 or 1970, I think the last 50 years, we're having these catastrophic bird declines pretty much across the board. And we don't, there is no single smoking gun. We don't know what's caused all those declines. But when I think about it, I'm like, well, shoot, most bird species in North America, especially at the, that key time of raising their babies, even if they eat whatever the heck the rest of their lives, when they're raising their babies, they're feeding them insects or insect larvae. And we know now that, of course, there's that effect. If they're not getting those PUFAs, they're not doing as hot. So what if, what if us messing with water this whole time, changing the flows in the rivers, developing the wetlands, stuff drying up due to climate change or us pumping all the water out, what if that's part of the reason we lost 3 billion birds in this country? What if we change the diets that they're able to have and they just can't reproduce as well? We don't know. You know, that, that sounds as weird to me as probably a lot of the, a lot of Rachel Carson's stuff sounded, you know, when she first put it forward, but she was right. 
you know, and I, I don't think it's ever one smoking gun. And I think this might be a major thing to think about. So that's, that's the final and weirdest of the flows I'm talking about. But this, this paper is about, you know, water is so dynamic. We need to pay attention to all the ways it moves and all the things it affects and all the ways that we affect it and how that's affecting biodiversity. So that was a very long range. Obviously, I've been thinking about this for a while, but, <laughs> yeah. but thank you for giving me a platform to uh, soapbox real hard about that. Yes, yes. And so everything you said can be a little <laughs> overwhelming, yes. uh, yeah. for lack of better oh term. Oh my gosh, if, yeah. if somebody listening to this is maybe they've never heard of the water crisis or they're just not quite aware of like, what's this going on? And then we're like, oh my God, Charles, you just like freaking punch me. I have two black eyes now. <laughs> oh, like. <laughs> let's just fill this down a little bit sure so what can some what can i do mm. what can anybody listening to this do what is some very because i'm a very like you said i'm an actionable person mm-hmm. what are the little things or big things or just habits or whatever behaviors that we as society people can do that can at least start getting the conversation going mm-hmm. or putting the right foot forward mm-hmm. to start to really help this issue what, what can, what can I do? What can Brooke do sitting right here right now? I always think politics first. I'm always like, just pay attention to what people are doing in your area. Pay attention to the elections that you never do. Pay attention to city council, pay attention to, I don't know, really local government level stuff, or, or even just like whatever acts are being passed and things. It's so, I know it's hard to keep track of all that stuff, but like we need to vote and we need to be informed citizens because there are a lot of people out there who are who are running for election and things like that who are aware of some of these connections or or who are open to the ideas and we need to have those people able to make decisions right now it's really problematic to have people in offices where they are completely turning a blind eye to what's happening usually because the pe- those you know those marginalized people who are being affected are not voting for them or whatever so they don't care Right. But I think that that's a big one is pay attention to that, that kind of thing. Uh, I think one of the best ways also is advocating for wetlands. I'm a huge like wetland nerd and and they're not the only part of the whole equation here, but spend time near natural water places, learn to appreciate them for, for what they are and how special they are, how important they are for biodiversity. Invite other people to go hang out near a swamp with you (laughs) as weird as it sounds, you know, uh, sure. You know, put on bug spray or cover up or whatever. I mean, Mosquitoes aren't usually that bad in really intact environments a lot of the time. But teach other people that wetlands aren't gross, that they're cool, that they're important. You know, do a social media post about how awesome the ecosystem services are of your local river and help people appreciate things like that. There's always, you know, most human civilization comes up around a water, surface water source of some kind. So find your local wetland, give it some love, tell other people about it, help people appreciate it, bring some bird watchers there or, you know, or other naturalists get, get to know it a little bit. I think that kind of stuff can go a really long way in changing people's minds because I still talk to people all the time. Like, oh, what do you do? Well, I don't know. I guess part of what I do is study wetlands. And they're always like, oh, I'm sorry, that must smell. And I'm like, no, it's awesome. It's the best. Like, they're so cool. And people don't realize those connections. So yeah, help people understand the relevance, right, between biodiversity and water, how all that's connected. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I think the work that people are doing around social justice issues that connects to this so intensely, like that's really important. And I'm probably not the one to give them advice on what to do about it, but, but, you know, support those efforts too, if you see them, because social equity issues are a huge part of this that is inextricable. Yeah. 
Go love your nature. Yeah. Go love your nature. Find a local wetland. I actually just started a Twitter a Twitter hashtag recently that I'll probably expand elsewhere with a bunch of other similarly minded people. But we have hashtag wetland fan club. And like, please, <laughs> please post some pictures of your local wetland with hashtag fan club. You can also tag me if you want so I can see it. But but we need, yeah, we need to increase the love of freshwater habitats so that people know that they're great for us, that they're great for nature, and they're just beautiful to be around in general so yeah be a wetland fan and help other people be that too yeah awesome <laughs> i've taken up so much of your time which i'm very good at doing so but before we we wrap this up is there like any last things that we didn't talk about that you that i should have asked that i didn't is there like any like last things that you really just wanted to get out there that we just for some reason the rest of the conversation didn't come up <laughs> You know, I've, I've done a ton of babbling and I think, I think your questions have been excellently <laughs> organized for this. And I really, I really think we, we, we covered the ground pretty solidly, but yeah, I, I certainly, I, I would encourage, especially, you know, anyone who's natural history inclined or interested in graduate school and things like that, who wants to do research, like look into this stuff right now. Like, like we discussed, you know, water is going to be one of the major crises a number of levels that we are confronting in the near future and it's going to be one of those hot spots where we need passionate people we need conservationists like think about it. think about water think of, <laughs> like when you think about where to go what to do think about water issues as, as something to to research or to learn about or to visit if you're going to do some conservation travel like go to some of the world's coolest rivers and help those be protected you know and teach people about the species that rely on them yeah that's that's my big soapbox, I think. Nice. I, love it. I love it. You know, I'm all about that travel. So yeah. as soon as the Delta variant goes away, let's all just rock. That's right. Yeah. Go see the world. <laughs> Even your own backyard. Both. Ask them to how can someone connect with you? If someone wants to chat with you. What's mm -hmm. the best way? A few different ways, I suppose. I, I I'm I'm currently most active on Twitter, although I'm starting to learn my Instagram game a bit. <laughs> it's taken me a while. I'm I'm slowly getting in there. But on, on Twitter, I am at GuloThoughts, G-U-L-O-T-H-O-U-G-H-T-S. Thoughts is a hard word to spell. Yeah, Glad I got it. Uh, a little easier on Instagram, I'm GuloShots, G-U-L-O-S-H-O-T-S. I also have a website, vanreesconservation.com, that I have been finally getting that rolling in the last couple of weeks. So that's that's really going. And of course, you know, people are welcome to contact me through the website. That's very easy. And on social media, I'm very open as well. I'm involved with a podcast called The Nature Guys, which is very fun, a big, a big focus on nature in North America and how to go out and enjoy and learn about nature yourself. Definitely look us up sometime. We do a lot of cool stuff and we're always looking for you know more suggestions on material and episodes and stuff. So that's also great. And definitely follow follow us them at nature underscore guys on twitter and nature guys podcast and instagram it's a lot of fun definitely have a listen yeah yeah i'm gonna be on it here soon but what so yeah we'll stoked for that <laughs> we'll definitely do a podcast trade so everyone will have to listen to that for sure so it's really good but awesome thank you so thank much you. for coming on really appreciate it so much fun <laughs> dream come true i'm a huge fan of the podcast it's been awesome awesome thank you charles <laughs> thank you Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>